Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, this is Sharon Salzberg, and I'm delighted to sit down with Lama Sultram Alioni for today's episode of the Metta Hour podcast. Lama Sultram is an author, Buddhist teacher, and the founder and resident Lama of Tara Mandala Retreat Center in Colorado. Lama Sultram was born in the States and traveled to India in her late teens. We actually met in uh, 1970 or very early 1971 in Bodh Gaya, India to begin with. In 1970, at the age of 22, she was ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist nun by His Holiness the 16th Karmapa. After four years living as a nun in the Himalayan region, she returned her monastic vows, married, and raised a family of three children. 
She has a master's degree in Buddhist studies, women's studies from Antioch University, and is known for her ability to translate the wisdom of the ancient Tibetan Buddhist tradition into clear teachings that are relatable and relevant to Western audiences. Her latest book, Wisdom Rising, Journey into the Mandala of the Empowered Feminine, was released in May of 2018. Welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Nice to be with you. It's very nice to be with you. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. And for you on yours. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> they keep coming no matter how many books someone has written. I always feel it's like a really big accomplishment, especially I know uh, your schedule is probably like mine in terms of traveling and teaching and a lot of other responsibilities and you have the place mm -hmm. um, and everything that implies. And so just sort of the quiet time to write a book is, takes some doing. Yes. Challenging. Yes. So you first went to India, as I did, uh, in your teens. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for that journey? I went to India when I was 19. I had dropped out of university, and I was interested in what I called the Mystic East. And it was 1967 that I went. And so it was definitely with an idea of search that I went. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, I didn't go as a tourist. And so I was with uh, Vicki Hitchcock, who was the director of Blessings and When the Iron Bird Flies. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but mm -hmm. she and I were I friends. didn't know that. That's really amazing. Yeah. We were college friends and we went together. And her father was a consul general in Calcutta at that time. And so we worked with Mother Teresa for a while in um, a home for unwed mothers and abandoned babies, and then went to Nepal. And that's where I met Tibetans. And for me, it was like a an amazing process of of kind of like trying to remember a song that you once knew when I saw them, it was, it was very familiar mm -hmm. and yet of course very foreign because I was from New Hampshire <laughs> mm -hmm. and they were from Tibet and had just escaped. So, uh, a very paradoxical feeling of these are my people, but I'm not one of them, mm -hmm. but I am one of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, that was my first impression. You know, this is going to sound really strange, but, uh, I probably, but, I was reading something online of Michael Pollan's recent book about his first taking psychedelics at whatever age he is now. Hmm. And the things he was describing um, didn't make me think of psychedelics. They made me think of living in India in those years. Hmm. You know, the um, the quality of discovery and the sense of wonder and love and looking yeah. at very ordinary experience with new eyes and, and just feeling like the... Uh, the movement of life, you know, through uh, everything. And and so I, I looked back just recently. This just happened like yesterday or something. And <coughs> so I started thinking again about what it was like to be in India in those young years and, um, you know, being so sick or whatever, and, and none of it mattered. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if it was like that for you, but the sense of connectedness to sacred places mm -hmm. and uh, and even there being a sacred place, we didn't have that in New Hampshire. 
you know? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, like, being at the um, Swambu Stupa in Kathmandu or in Bodh Gaya was an extraordinary awakening to the whole idea of sacred place mm-hmm. and that there were was such a thing. We had a very divorced relationship with nature. You know, we lived in houses and, you know, we were, I lived in the country and was in nature a lot, but my parents didn't really relate to it, mm-hmm. um, except to sort of somewhere where you go and do things like ride horses or play golf or whatever. <laughs> but... um, and that was really important to me and also the connection to the lunar cycle uh, that that there were things that happened on full moon and new moon. I never, I never conceived of something like that. Plus, India was very different in those days. Or mm-hmm. I think something like six billion less people. You're right. Something like that. that there are now. I don't know if that statistics right, but there are many fewer people, and uh, very few cars. Uh, you hardly ever see cars on the road. You'd see elephants and, and uh, camels and trucks, and then the odd ambassador, those, mm-hmm. those weird right. kind of, uh, sedans that had curtains in the window. Yeah, I remember those. But, but, you know, so when I hitchhiked across India in, in 1967, riding on the top of trucks mostly, and that um, box that's over the cab of the truck, mm-hmm. uh, it was like a, a two-story convertible. <laughs> And looking out over the plains of India and sleeping up there and then waking up in the morning and, you know, watching people going out into the fields with um, their tools and so on. And and just the life, the rhythm of life was so connected to nature and, and, and sacredness. And that was really new to me. And it strikes me that, you know, in some ways... That sense of the sacred in the ordinary and the sense of that magic that's discoverable, that's real, um, and to be experienced actually permeates your work. Um, like a large portion of Wisdom Rising um, is the teaching of the different forms of the Dakini, which is almost an exemplar of that coming together. And so uh, for those who aren't familiar with with that lineage, can you speak a little bit on the context you're drawing from and what a Dakini is and mm-hmm. how they became such an integral part of your practice? Yeah, so uh, as I said, I followed the Tibetan tradition, uh, which is Vajrayana Buddhism. It was the final period of development of Buddhism in India that occurred between the 8th and 12th centuries, mainly. And it's a very interesting thing that happened to Buddhism because th- there was a huge influx of of new ideas and practices and so on when the tantric tradition joined with Buddhism. And so what came in were mandalas. Uh, There were sadhana practices with visualizations, mantras, hand movements, mudras, feasting, poetry, sacred sexuality, and women teachers, women gurus. Uh, which was uh, a new a new phenomena, and so within this context of Vajrayana Buddhism, which then joined with Mahayana Buddhism, uh, forming what we call Vajrayana or Tantrayana or Mantrayana, um, I I somewhat avoid the word Tantra because it's so associated with Neo Tantra. Mm-hmm. 
uh, now in this country, and Tantra really has such a deeper meaning. It actually means continuity, a luminous thread of continuity. But in any case, within uh, the Tibetan tradition that I practiced, I met this concept of the sacred feminine in the form of dakinis. And they look sort of like human beings, um, but they're different colors and they don't have, uh, you don't see them as having intestines and hearts and so mm-hmm. on. They're, they're made of light and different colors of light that have different symbolic meanings and they have accoutrements that have symbolic meanings and they're fierce and they're surrounded by flames. And so when you practice a Dakini mandala, you actually are transforming your own psyche into a template of wholeness, the mandala, which has a center and four directions. So it has the central Dakini and Dakinis in the four directions and they're they're dancing, they're luminous, and they're fierce and uh, and wise. And so this whole idea of fierce wisdom or an aspect of the feminine that was more wild and had a, a sense of sexuality and, and spirituality sort of co-emerging in, in the Dakinis, but, but mainly that this fierce wisdom um, and how they appear as guides and messengers and, and they are deities as well. So um, for me, this was a very refreshing option in terms of the feminine uh, and what what the sacred feminine could mean or could be embodied as, and I had had the experience, of course, of of the Virgin uh, Mary. Although I, I wasn't raised Catholic, I was raised Unitarian, but I knew about that and the Greek goddesses and so on. But I hadn't had this experience of these very fascinating emanations of wisdom called dakinis. Mm-hmm. And in in, San, in Sanskrit, it's Dakinis, and in Tibetan, it's Khandro, or Khandro Ma, which means uh, sky dancer or she who goes through space or travels in space. Does that give you an idea? Yeah, or, no, I'm or, sitting here all enraptured. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> great. And each Dakini, you write about five different families of Dakinis mm-hmm. in the book, and each is related to a different quality of wisdom, right? Yeah, no, and and interestingly, also a different obstructed emotional pattern. Oh, mm-hmm. and so each each dakini, for example, in the center you have the Buddha dakini, and and she, her obstructed emotional pattern or her poison, as it would be called, is ignorance, and so that takes the form of denial, depression, spaciness, and so on. And then that very energy, when the grip of ego is removed from it, the same energy becomes spaciousness. Mm-hmm. And so it's all-encompassing wisdom. So each each Dakini has this, in a way, it's almost like a shrouded energy mm-hmm. in, in the poison. And then through the illumination due to the sound of the seed syllable and the light and the visualization that obstructed pattern is transformed into the wisdom. Yeah, I love that. In the Theravadan system, like in, in Burma or Southeast Asia, 
is kind of a similar construct, not with Dakinis, but with just mental qualities where, um, you know, there's a, there's a personality type known as the aversive type, as an example, the kind of person who only sees pretty much what's wrong when they walk uh -huh. into a room. And, um, and the obstructed or constricted limitation of that is uh, that you're, first of all, you're perpetually unhappy um, and you miss a lot of what's joyous and delightful. But the the purified form of that very same tendency is a kind of penetrating insight because mm. that ability to see what's wrong is also a rare gift. There are lots of groups mm -hmm. where no one else wants to see that flaw, you know, or that hole in the carpet or whatever. And here's this person saying, look at that hole, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so they can cut through like social niceties and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that's um very similar and also in the five families anger or aversion becomes mirror like wisdom, mm -hmm. which is that quality of clarity and insight. So it's very similar. It's beautiful. So um this is a quotation from your book. The loss of feminine qualities is an urgent psychological and ecological issue in modern society. It is a painful loss in our emotional lives and a disastrous loss for the safety of life on Earth. So what do you mean by feminine qualities? <laughs> I'm assuming loving kindness and compassion and so on. Yeah, I, yes, and, and but not only. Mm -hmm. um, I think feminine qualities have a variety of manifestations. Uh, some are the more obvious ones that we associate with mm -hmm. uh, with kindness, compassion, an ex experience of interconnectedness, a mm -hmm. re re relationality, uh, valuing of relation. And also uh, the feminine has the quality of insight mm -hmm. and precision and wisdom. So uh, in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, the feminine is associated with wisdom and the masculine with skillful means and compassion. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, that wisdom energy is uh, uh, connected also with emptiness, uh, not empty like empty pocket, but the emptiness of the experience of letting go of our reified notions of things and how they are, and then that being transformed into its true condition. So that that... Uh, that idea of emptiness connected to the feminine doesn't mean like, oh, it's uh, women are empty, you know, right. <laughs> they're nothing, but um, more that um, vastness and and then how that manifests is in the Dakinis and in the female yidams or, or deities and also in, in women and women teachers and, mm -hmm. and so on. In many ways, I think you... Uh, are possibly most well known for your work with the shadow and feeding your demons. I remember, I can't remember what year it was, when I went to Cambridge Mass to sit as a student in one of your weekend retreats, um, we were doing chid practice, mm. feeding the demons. I remember as oh, we I took didn't a walk. I did that, yeah, and we, yeah. we took a walk afterwards and we got completely lost in the cemetery. I don't know if you oh, remember yeah, it. Yeah, we just wandered around. around. It's like I wrote yeah. about it, which is why I remembered it. But uh, 
it was really interesting. We ended up just wandering and wandering and wandering. They locked up. You know, we couldn't get out. And then finally, the caretaker came. And, of course, he had no one normally to talk to, so he talked, like, endlessly before he let us out, you know. But it's quite interesting wandering through the cemetery. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's very traditional, you know, Dakinis wandering in the charnel ground. Yes, there we were, and having done chin <laughs> practice. So maybe you could say something about the shadow and feeding your demons. Sure, Yeah. Two main things I think I've focused on, and in a way they they have a similar theme. One is the chip practice um, and how that then was made accessible through my five-step process of feeding your demons. And then the mandala and the transformation of emotions into wisdom with that template. So uh, feeding your demons is based on the idea that those parts of ourselves that drain us, which um, are our addictions, uh, the things we're worried about, our fixations, our fears, and so on, those are our demons. It's They're not external beings uh, at all. Machi Lopton, who founded the Chit Practice, said all demons come from the mind. So our demons are, I guess you could say simply, our hang-ups. It's, it's what drains mm-hmm. our energy. And so the principle be- behind feeding them is that and rather than trying to repress these things, let's say it's, it's an addiction, rather than just trying to stop, we look at and, and transform that uh, energy of the addiction in to a personified being and then ask it what it wants, what it really needs, and how it will feel if it gets what it really needs. Mm -hmm. So under an addiction, for example, there's always some sort of need that you're trying to fill. Maybe Mm -hmm. you you want to feel comfort or whatever. So so with Feeding Your Demons, you, you address that and you actually turn your own body into a nectar, and that nectar has the quality that the demon will feel if it gets what it really needs, and that's what you feed them. And so essentially what happens is that alienated part of the psyche or that that piece that you're ashamed of or that you try to repress or get rid of is brought forth, accepted, nurtured, and then integrated. And so in a way it's a similar process with the mandala because you're again working with the shadow and the negative emotions and then through other kinds of means through through the sound and the color and the visualization of the mandala those negative patterns or the shadow energy of the five poisons is transformed into the five wisdoms so in both cases it seems that it's uh, it's an antidote to fear and shame, as you say. You know, like the more uh, conventional yeah. reactions to these states that we don't like, we don't want to believe are still there after all these years of practice or therapy or life or whatever. <laughs> um, and yet they are. They're, at least certainly they're arising, although perhaps not in quite the same form, but they are present. And so we uh, struggle often with that sense of revulsion and, and uh, dismay, you know, like what's yeah. this still here for? And so they're really practices, it seems to me, about fearlessness, our own ability to be with. Be with and and feed and nurture mm-hmm. those parts of ourselves that 
we wish weren't there. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, those parts can integrate. Mm-hmm. And we come into an experience of wholeness rather than being uh, in a state of battling with ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. It seems also that structurally, like different systems in society exist because it's too uncomfortable to sit and integrate some painful feelings. So we project, you know, we create the other um, that will bear the the rage and the uh, be the holder Mm -hmm. of the um, greed or whatever we imagine, you know, or project onto someone else. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we work with ourselves, you know, even when you work, say, um, with a relationship with feeding your demons, you don't feed the other person as the demon. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you work with um, what comes up in you in the context of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I just got a very funny image. Of, you know, <laughs> of the other person as the demon. The other person as the demon. Like all those yeah. empty chairs populated by people's partners and so on. <laughs> Really I just yesterday taught, um, no, it was sun, Sunday, taught at Spirit Rock a retreat, a day-long, called Demons in Love. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was specifically about the demons that come up in relationship uh-huh. and uh, and how great relationship is for triggering our demons. <laughs> yeah. It must have, I bet it was a great day and very popular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... It was interesting, yeah. It's really fabulous. So I'm going to ask you one of the questions that people ask me all the time about um, Buddhism and inequality, and uh, people uh, are always asking me if I had, if I felt personally that a loss in some way, or you know, secondary in my life uh, within the Buddhist context. And for me, my response is like. Um, I've never felt that in any way in terms of my access to teachings or teachers or uh, the things that I was really there for, um, that there is a, you know, there's clearly a patriarchal structure that exists in Southeast Asia so that, um, you know, I'd have, uh, say, teachers, monk teachers say to me, one other thing was I had very few monastic teachers um, until later on, but um, and I never became a nun, so I never actually entered the kind of heart of the hierarchy and the the places I would really feel discrimination. But um, as a lay woman and a teacher, you know, it would be kind of, um, I don't know what the right word is in English. It's, it's sort of like uh, I'd have a monk say to me in terms of learning loving kindness meditation and being about to bring it back to the U.S. because... Uh, within that tradition, I was the first one, and 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 you know this monk said to me, "You'll be a very fine teacher of loving kindness for women." And I thought, "Well, it doesn't work that way, you know." Like, uh, so there's definitely that, you know. But not having become a nun, I don't feel like I I really had to. Um, I could sort of do exactly what actually they told me to do in the spirit of the original teachings which was take what was useful and leave the rest. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's definitely something. We also had a different experience being Western mm-hmm. um, that I realized, you know, that 
I felt, oh, I was never really, there wasn't prejudice against me. I got all the teachings I wanted and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but I realized I was treated differently than, say, uh, a Tibetan nun. Mm -hmm. And, like, there was a nun uh, who was at the place of Abba Rinpoche, who was one of my primary meditation teachers in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. A married lama, and he had kids and a wife and so on. And uh, there was a nun there, and all she did was cook and clean. Mm -hmm. And she had renounced the world in order to practice the Dharma. But, you know, that was what she ended up doing because she was a woman, and it was considered that she didn't have the capacity to, to do more than that. And so I think it's a, it's a little slanted for us mm -hmm. as uh, Westerners to think that this was all the women's experience, mm -hmm. and um, because it wasn't and isn't still. Uh, but I do think that our experience uh, as Western women teachers is also impacting Asia, mm -hmm. and uh, women are being treated differently, partly because of the uh, teachers coming to the West and and realizing, oh, oh, women can drive. Oh, <laughs> women can do this, and women can do that. Oh, and women are actually smart, and they they're running these centers. Right. <laughs> There's a ninety percent of women at this retreat, you know. Um, and so realizing, you know, the qualities of women um, here, and then implementing change back there. But it's still, it's mm -hmm. slow moving, and it's also that women have internalized the definition of themselves as inferior mm -hmm. and, and as a lower birth. Uh, and I know I've, I've had the conversation um, here in the Bay Area with somebody who is involved with domestic violence amongst Tibetan mm -hmm. resettlement projects mm -hmm. and how the women... Uh, have internalized the idea that when they're abused, this is because of their bad karma, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, being born a woman is already their bad karma, and uh, the abuse is just part of it, and so they should pray to be reborn as a man. And the women think this. You mm -hmm. know, they've internalized that message. Uh, and so... Uh, that shift uh, it, it will take time, and hopefully it will happen, and the, the, uh, those images, self-images, uh, will change. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been one of the amazing things about watching this movement of these teachings from Asia to the West. I mean, not that the West is perfect by any means, but um, just the kind of conviction. Like, I remember one... Um, at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, which is a center I co-founded in, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, different teachers come and go. And there was one year, many years ago, when uh, one of the Western teachers had gone to Thailand, I think it was, and had really uh, been very taken with this Thai meditation teacher and brought him back to co-lead a retreat with him. And uh, we were sitting up in one of the rooms and uh, getting ready to leave just when I were going to leave. And we didn't have a house in those days. So uh, when there was like a, all the rooms were taken up in the center, we had to go somewhere else. So um, we're getting ready to leave and we're just having a conversation. And he said something, I don't even know what inspired it, but he said, well, you know, of course, if you're a woman, uh, the best thing to do is to take care of the monks and, and make merit because 
then yeah. maybe in your next life you can be reborn maybe. a man, and then you can be liberated. I took a look at the Westerner who invited him, who was going to be there for two weeks with him, and I thought, <laughs> good luck with that, you know? Like, and I left, and I came back two weeks later, and of course he was like completely like pale, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, exhausted, and like, because it's not easy, you know? It's just not going to work. I mean, it's not going to fly here, you know? Um, there isn't going to be a passive acceptance of it. And so hence is the transformation. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's interesting. Yeah. The interdependence of the shift. I was in a, in a car once with Tibetan Lama and um, his sister was in the back seat with Aunt Klein. And <clears throat> um, I, I was talking about women and the nuns and so on, <clears throat> and how they weren't getting the full education and so on that they, they should be getting. And he started to say things like, well, you know, that's how it's always been, and, you know, the the, the nuns just don't have that same capacity, and, and, you know, I will get really severely criticized if I change mm -hmm. it, and so on. That was his real worry. And... um and I was like not letting him off the hook, and <laughs> I just kept going. Mm -hmm. Like, no, Ribiche, no, mm -hmm. you have to make this shift, otherwise it's never going to change, and so on. And his sister was in the back seat, not saying anything, but pinching Anne Klein's thigh <laughs> really hard. <laughs> like, she was so excited. <laughs> well, that's very funny. So how is the reception to Wisdom Rising, given the context of this time? Well, it's amazing how it just keeps becoming more timely. Mm -hmm. The message of the book uh, was, of course, we, we've had the, the Women's March and then um, Me Too and mm -hmm. Time is Up. And now within Buddhism itself, mm -hmm. there's a whole sort of new wave of Me Too movement happening. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, there's that level of its its relevance because I do talk about um, that the way that women and nature have been tied together historically and in in past of uh, the emphasis is transcendence then women and nature are always at the bottom and the divine is at the top and so they're denigrated and so on and so I've taught about that parallel of our ecological situation mm -hmm. and the situation of women and how the religious rules and values that are governing world religions, all of them, are repressive to women and also to nature. Mm -hmm. And how we don't really talk enough about how we need to shift those religious values in order for the the fundamental paradigm of people's lives to shift, to have that outer shift in terms of how we're treating the earth and how we're treating women. And so that's very um, current, obviously. And then the methods in the book are important because as women are waking up and as they're experiencing their fierceness, they're looking for methods of empowerment, IN empowerment mm -hmm. so that they're not drained in in terms of their activism or the changes they're they're trying to support 
And so the reception has been extraordinary, and and it it's very almost eerie mm-hmm. how how um, timely the book is, and how unplanned that was. Yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but it just feels like it's part of the change that's 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 upon us, and I'm I'm happy about it. I, I've been talking about this, as you know, mm-hmm. for probably 40 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. And uh, so to to have to actually see some of these shifts, even though it's painful for these things to come out, uh, it's. It's important, and it gives me hope for the future mm-hmm. that that we can actually see a shift. I think, uh, I mean, who knows what guides these things and the timing? You know, it's like it's such an amazing thing, but the, the timing does feel extraordinary. And it's also yeah. interesting, you know, knowing. Um, I mean, you have a family, uh, knowing younger people that uh, they just see the world differently you know the things we struggle over sometimes like uh you know gender identity and you know how to reveal something about yourself to your uh to society you know it's like they just think what you know where um there are people like that there are people with uh two male parents or two people with two female parents mm-hmm. it's just like hey that's just life you know and so mm-hmm. it, and 40 years very, has seen a lot of change recent. yes you know that the whole acceptance of gay marriage and um and having parents of the same gender mm-hmm. that's really short um and 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 of course it's not complete you know mm-hmm. it might seem like it is uh because so much changes happen but it's still very much in process and there's still a lot of prejudice and a lot mm-hmm. of unacceptance of it as we know oh definitely and there's uh and yet, you know, th- there's something about uh, just time going by, you know, and new generations. Yeah. And uh, somebody had a uh, – when Steve Jobs died, somebody posted a, a thing online about um, – I don't know how old their child was, like under two. And they handed him uh, an iPad, and he was very happy, like flipping the – you know, moving the pages. They handed him a magazine, and he freaked out because it was static. Huh. And his his mind, his young mind, the the magazine was like a broken iPad, you know. Right. That wouldn't move anything. Look at that, you know. Oh, wow. We are changing. Well, thank goodness for change too, really. Yeah. Uh, in its own way. So here's another quotation from your book. If I could find the Dakinis, I would find my spiritual role models. I could see how they did it. I could see how they made the connections between mother, wife, and woman how they integrated spirituality with everyday life challenges. Mm-hmm. And you found the Dakinis. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I found them, and then I really developed a relationship with them. And I did for about eight years every day and, and doing numerous retreats and so on, this one practice mm-hmm. Um, which is the Gong Ter, the mind treasure of Ayukandro, and it's a Siamuka practice, which is the lion-headed Dakini. Mm-hmm. And and again, the the four Dakinis around her and the same symbols, and then there's 16 retinue Dakinis and then four gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. 
So I did that um, so intensely and so much. It's almost like I felt like I had gone to the realm of the Dakinis because I mm. was there so much with them. And uh, so I have a very personal feeling about them. And, um, yeah, I, I guess you could say I believe they do have an ontological existence. They're, they're not just uh, archetypes mm-hmm. and symbolic, mm-hmm. although I think that for most people that's a big stretch and it's more useful to think about them as symbolizing certain qualities, mm-hmm. transformations, and so on. But my my personal experience is is much more alive than that. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you said that too about practice because we also live in a time of not all change is positive, of course, you know, and we live in a time of like the one minute meditator or you know, yeah, where practice. I mean, somebody. Um, I tell this story sometimes in teaching. Somebody I was teaching in New York, and somebody uh, very uncharmingly said to me, well, a lot of younger meditation teachers than you say we don't need to formally practice at all. We can just be mindful, like walking down the street or, you know, cooking dinner or whatever. So what do you have to say? You know, so in my dotage, you know, I said, I said, I don't think so. Yeah, you know, but, like, it's a nice story, and it's yeah. <laughs> theoretically very true, but... <laughs> is it real for any one of us? You know, would I actually be that mindful stirring the rice and walking down the street if I didn't have a formal practice? I don't think so. Yeah. One one of the the things that that I say to that is it's very difficult to have the post meditation experience without the meditation mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, it's yeah. an interesting landscape, you know, in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the things we value, compassion, mindfulness, whatever, uh, also meeting the West in these other ways, you know. Let's hurry yeah. up. It's taking too long. It's too much effort. And... Yeah, that's, it's too bad because it's uh, it's going to lead to degeneration mm-hmm. of the tradition and it's going to be like, oh, yeah, I know meditation. I have the app. Great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for us who have met so many amazing uh, teachers of, of the generation before us mm-hmm. and experienced those those beings, and really they are beings. They're, of course, they're human, but such extraordinary beings like um, Dingo Kensei Rinpoche mm-hmm. and uh, Toko Urjan and Kala Rinpoche and, and my teacher Ava Rinpoche and so on, Dujim Rinpoche, and of course the Holiness of Dalai Lama we mm-hmm. still have with us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, those beings that spent 12 years in retreat or 16 years. And mm-hmm. Now we have we have it at Taramandala, which is my center mm-hmm. in Colorado, and uh, Pagosa Springs, as you know. Um, we have a Lama who spent 16 years in mm. solitary retreat and then 10 more years in the same cave community guiding others. And I was so happy to meet him because mm. even in the Tibetan communities, very few people are actually doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's amazing to be with him. He's so radiant and 
His name is Lama Karma. That's nice. Uh, very simple, you know, mm-hmm. background, not, um, you know, not a tulku, not a reincarnate Lama who sits on thrones and things. And mm-hmm. Really um, spent that much time in practice. This is this is becoming more and more rare. And it's also why next year I'm going into retreat myself and not going to be traveling around or mm-hmm. doing things like this. Um, I'll t- teach at Taramandala some um, in the summer and spring, but um, I plan to take a deep dive into my own practice because as teachers, I think we can also get uh, equally busy and um, distracted mm-hmm. and try to fit in practice amongst all that. Um, we lose that thread of our own development and deepening, which is essential as teachers uh, to have. Well, it's very inspiring. Um, really, it's it's great. I I got off an airplane at, I don't know what time last night. I got back to my apartment in New York at 2 a.m., you know, because the plane was late. And I got up this morning, you know, and it, it's just kind of like, oh, right, I remember those days, you know. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> And you weren't getting yeah. on another airplane. So how wonderful that you're doing that. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I know you do a lot of practice, too. I don't do enough, so this is inspiring me. Good. So, so before we finish, maybe you could say something about Taramandala and the kinds of offerings that are there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Taramandala is, is in southwest Colorado. It's 700 acres of rolling hills and springs and ponds and there's wild horses actually now living at Taramandala mm. appeared in the last year or so so as you walk around wild horses are wandering around too um, and uh, there's a 12,000 square foot three-story temple that was ornamented by Bhutanese carvers and uh, Tibetan artists so it's extraordinarily beautiful that the temple and then it has a Tibetan and English library in the second floor. And then on the third floor is an empty meeting room space. So it's representing the three kayas, the temple. And then we have retreat cabins for solitary retreat. We have people in retreat for as long as five years and as short as a few days. Mm. So uh, we have group retreats uh, taught by me and, and other teachers and hopefully you again sometime soon. Someday. Um, and then uh, Taramando's also become more active online. Mm-hmm. Uh, we finally got internet up and down. Um, we, we had like a miserable internet for years and just last November we got really good internet so we can webcast and and do things that way which is really helpful so we we also have online courses there's an online course launching august 1st on um wisdom rising and um there's a feeding your demons course online and then the other thing is that um i'm active on lama sultrim alione Facebook page, mm-hmm. the the public figure um, page. I've got a private one, but I've I I now have five thousand close friends, so I'm not yeah. allowed to have any more. <laughs> so we have the public page, and um, yeah, I, we do a lot of live, uh, live webcasting on Facebook. 
and um, yeah, it's pretty pretty active there. That's so great. I mean, the first time I went, we I slept in a tent, right? Which that's was all there was. You know, that's all years. there was, and so uh, it was actually interesting and fine. I'm a very urban person, but. It was fine, except when I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and I turned around. I couldn't remember which tent was mine, but that was a moment. But and then when uh, Sonny Rubache was um, uh, suggesting that you know I should go back, and I said, "Well, of course I will," but you know, it's uh, they don't have any internet, and they laughed at me because you had built in the meantime this extraordinary temple and structure, and you had internet at all, which was a big step. Mm-hmm. So it's that much more heartening to hear that. Well, now it's, it's fast. Yeah. It's really, uh, it it really was kind of like coming out of the dark ages. <laughs> Although there's a beauty too to no internet yeah, it's and true. being yeah. on the land, and you know, I think in a way the theme of our conversation today has been this um, play between the ancient tradition and the beauty of of those teachers and teachings mm-hmm. and actually really not losing that yeah. at the same time how how can we meet our world as it is now and have an impact and and help more people and things like meditation apps do mm-hmm. yeah they do so it's a um a balancing act and everyone has to choose the way they're going to relate to that but you know to me the most important thing is to help people mm-hmm uh, and not only people, but of course animals and so on, um, all beings. And so however we can do that best, we should use the skillful means to do it. It's fantastic. And I wonder if you could lead us in a, a meditation for a few minutes just before we close. Yeah. Uh, maybe what we could do is to try um, one of the seed syllables of the Dakinis with the color. Um, and and feel the transformation of of an emotion mm-hmm. uh, and do just a short meditation like that. Great. So so let's um, let's take the emotion of anger. I think it's something that's coming up for a lot of us now, and we're seeing uh, the changes that are happening in our world and so on. So whether it's personal anger or more collective upset over things that are happening to let's tune into how we each experience anger, perhaps recalling an incident that happened recently. And now being in touch with that feeling where in our body we locate anger and what what the texture of it's like, what the feeling is like in our bodies. And then we'll use the seed syllable for the Vajra family, which is governed by the obstructed pattern of wisdom and the wisdom uh, pattern of mirror-like wisdom. And, we'll, and it works with anger. So we'll use the seed syllable ha, H-A, and the color blue. It's blue light. And so we'll sound the ha and sound it as though we're, we're sending the sound inside our bodies rather than projecting it out. And see the blue light of Vajra family 
permeating our bodies and watch what happens to the anger when we do that. So first tuning into the anger. And now together sounding the seed syllable ha, H-A. And as we sound that, sending blue light through our bodies and noticing what happens. And noticing how that feels in our bodies. Noticing also what happened to the anger. Feeling the blue. And then we'll end with dedication of merit, which is the offering of any positive energy that we've accumulated through doing the practice, offering that out to all beings everywhere. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today and for such a, mm. a rich conversation. To learn more about Lama Siltram's work and the Tara Mandala Center, you can visit www.taramandala.org. That's T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A.org. I also highly recommend her new book, Wisdom Rising, which you can purchase in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats in all the places that books are sold. Mm-hmm. Take care. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.